Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. What a great lineup we have uh, today. Mark Caleb Smith is going to lead us off, and then I'm going to have former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam joining me. We're going to talk about his new book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Justin Gibney will uh, join us at the top of the second hour, and then we will uh, close out the day with Dr. Walter Strickland. We're actually going to talk about, well, we're going to talk about the gospel, that we talk about every time we talk. Um, But we're going to talk specifically about um, something that Pastor David Platt recently said. Here's the quote. We desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. So um, Walter Strickland and I are going to talk about what does that mean? What does it mean to um, have a gospel that is somehow different or diluted or um, departs from the gospel gospel. Like, you know, do you see the gospel as it truly is, Jesus for who he truly is? Um, Or is there something else going on in the way we understand the gospel because of our social location? So we're going to have those conversations this morning. Um, So tomorrow is 714, making today 713. And at 714 a.m. tomorrow morning, it doesn't matter what time zone you live in around the world, at 714 a.m., on 714, um, something is going to begin happening. And it's called the Nationwide Bible Reading Marathon, but it's actually now global. So the name does not uh, acknowledge the reality that people around the world, Christians and Jews around the world, have caught on to this great idea. It was actually started by a woman, was the originally the idea, brainchild, of a woman in Iowa. Her name is Diane Bentley. And the idea was, hey, you know, Second Chronicles 7.14 clearly says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, that passage of Scripture is spoken to and about the nation of Israel. But as the living Word of God, we recognize it has application um, no matter where you live. Uh, the people of God called by the name of God— um, if we humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and repent of evil, we certainly acknowledge and recognize that, you know, God continues to operate in the same way. God hears and God forgives and God heals. I mean, this, this is a redemptive narrative. And so at 7.14 a.m. tomorrow morning, all around the world, including this year, in the nation of Israel. So I wanted to highlight that today. The public reading of the shared scriptures of the Law and the Prophets, the Old what we call the Old Testament, is going to be spearheaded in Israel by an organization called Genesis 1-2-3. And the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation um, has readers uh, who are going to read each chapter of the prophet Isaiah in um, Hebrew, English, Arabic, Russian, uh, French, Spanish, Portuguese, on and on and on and on and on. 
It is really, really cool. It's happening around the world. And you can still participate at 7.14 a.m. tomorrow morning, which, yeah, of course, I will remind you of at 7.14 tomorrow morning on 7.14. But this is like, you know, your day in advance heads up so you can put it on your schedule. Let me encourage you to wherever you live in whatever time zone you're in, plan to out loud publicly read some passage of Scripture. It doesn't really matter what passage of Scripture. The marathon is taking place around the world. And the marathon will begin in Genesis 1-1 and conclude with, uh, obviously, the book of Revelation. So uh, it's not too late to participate, and I just thought that I would encourage you today to consider being a part of the nationwide Bible reading marathon, which is now global, which I think is really, really cool. All right, there's one dominant headline uh, this morning, and that is uh, the ongoing protests in the nation of Cuba, our southern neighbor just by a scant few miles, President Biden has issued a statement in support of the protesters. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio, whose parents are Cuban immigrants, whose home is the state of Florida, huge expat Cuban population there. He gave a really passionate speech yesterday on the floor of the Senate. want to direct you to those comments as well. That's going to be the lead-off conversation that we have with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. So what is going on in Cuba and how can we um, be you know, supporting democracy on the rise in uh, one of the last bastions of communism in the world. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Hey, Mark, welcome back. Hey, Carmen, how you doing? I'm I'm very well. I'm very well. Okay, I must know what is the uh, DYI project going on at your house? I understand that phase one is now complete. <laughs> so, uh, my father used to tell me when I was growing up and sort of making lackluster efforts at uh, home improvement projects with him that if I ever had to make a living with my hands, that I would starve. And so when I use the term do it yourself or anything like that, it's always within the understanding that I'm a, I'm an amateur for sure. Um, but this is a bathroom renovation. We bought wow. a home a few years ago and our bathroom needs uh, new flooring in particular. We'll put a new vanity, new toilet, and all those things as well. So, uh, you know, for us, a fairly significant project. So yesterday was tiling. The tiles down have to be grouted today. Good job, man. I mean, yeah, that's really good. That's quite, I mean, tiling is, that's that's a major undertaking. Well done. I'm just going to go ahead and say well done. I realize it's not quite done, but well done. Good good job. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. So um, in Cuba, we've got thousands of people in the streets uh, across dozens of cities. They began protesting on Sunday uh, against food shortages and high prices um, just, you know, remind us about the authoritarian regime in Cuba and give us a sense of where you think things are. Yeah, I mean, Cuba has a, a long history of authoritarianism. Uh, Castro took over in 1959, but even the regime that he succeeded, the Bautista regime, wasn't exactly a paragon of freedom. Uh, it was authoritarian. It was more supportive of the U.S., but uh, it was authoritarian also. Uh, Castro takes over 1959. And we've really had a, an oppressive, brutal regime there uh, since then. 
uh, probably as Americans, you know, this is unusual, right? Cuba's, as you, you were saying in, our, in the introduction, Cuba's only 90 miles away uh, from United States territory. So it's our our next door neighbor uh, having this kind of regime has been quite a thing for America to deal with. Um, but we started sanctions in 1962 in the Kennedy administration, and those economic sanctions, uh, which have restricted trade between the two countries, have really stood up uh, throughout that time. As far as I know, those are the longest lasting economic sanctions uh, in modern political history. So, uh, but you, you know, we can't have any illusions about Cuba. Cuba is brutal. It's oppressive. There's no political freedom there. There's no freedom to be in, in opposition to the government whatsoever. There's very limited economic opportunities for, for Cubans themselves, um, and they're reacting to that. Um, and so you know, what we're seeing and it isn't a surprise when you think of the history of Cuba, uh, but maybe the timing is a bit of a surprise. And of course, the, the new Biden administration has to figure out how to deal with it. All right. Lots of calls for um, embargoes and sanctions to be lifted um, in, in right. support of the fact that people there are, are desperate and hungry and you know, and so how do you do that without supporting um, the government that is in place? I think it, it is a real challenge. Um, I want to talk with you about um, what is going on in Texas as well. But you and I both read this piece in the National Review about young and Amer- uh, young Americans increasingly preferring socialism um, and how to change their minds. So let's touch on that because, you know, the conversation about Cuba raises uh, or uplifts right. the conversation about communism and socialism. So let's talk about that. Yeah, there's a new poll out recently from uh, Axios uh, that says that people 18 to 24 years old, uh, more than half of them, 51%, view socialism positively. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. Uh, that's hard for me to really get my fingers around given uh, where when I grew up and how I understood socialism. Um, you know, I'm a Cold War kid. And so for me, socialism has always just been one of those things that we disdained and just kind of moved forward. That's not necessarily true for the young generation uh, at the moment right now. Uh, They have divided beliefs over it, but they tend to view it more positively. What we don't know, and I think we have to be careful, uh, and I've spoken with enough students to understand this reality. What we don't really know is what they mean by the word socialism. Uh, I'm not sure they always mean uh, you know, full-blown socialism or something bordering on communism. They probably mean something more of an equal system, something more like a social democracy, something more like a Scandinavian approach to government, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's it's viewed positively. And I guess the question now is for those of us who, who disagree with socialism and look at the long history of abuses under that form of government, uh, what do we do about it? You know, how do we communicate to these uh, 18 to 24-year-olds about uh, socialism, what it means and what we can do to kind of begin, hopefully, to change their minds a bit about that economic system. Yeah, good, really good observations. I want to direct people to that a piece in National Review. You can find it at nationalreview.com. Young Americans increasingly prefer socialism. Here's how to change their minds. All right, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to look at what is going on um, with legislators from the state of Texas who have fled their state to raise awareness about a voting rights bill Um, and they're suppressing uh, the will of their own people in order to do it. It's a curious, it's a curious tactic. It's a stunt. We'll be right back.
All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. As far as I know, not running currently for any political office. <laughs> uh, that is correct. Yeah, no plans okay. to throw my hat into any ring right now. I say that because I I open my email every day, and people that I know across the country who have jobs similar to mine are now running for office. Larry Elder, who is a Salem radio host, yeah. uh, is uh, has announced his bid to run for governor of the state of California. Um, Lanhe Chen, whose work I am familiar with from um, from Hoover Institute in Stanford, is running for California controller, um, which I got to tell you, if it, maybe if I could have a job, it would just be one that had the word controller in it. <laughs> but I hate math, and I feel like that's a math job. Totally feel like that's a math job. Okay, so um, that is not relevant to the topic we are discussing next, which is what in the world is going on in Texas, and why do these Texas legislators, who you know are voted by the will of the of the people of Texas, right? So Texas voters voted for legislators in Texas, but these Texas legislators have fled their own state. Um, in what I would just call an absolute stunt. So tell me what you think is happening here. They're supposedly trying to raise awareness about um, a vote, a, a law that would strengthen voting laws in Texas. Yeah, I mean, this has been an ongoing conflict in Texas. Uh, Texas Republicans control the state legislature there. Governor Abbott, of course, is a Republican as well. And they've they've tried to pass legislation uh, that would have more ID requirements for mail-in voting. It would limit some early voting options. Um, it would do some things, I, I think, to ensure integrity of elections. You could argue that it has some ways of limiting elections, but only in a very, very minimal way, I would say. Um, but as you know, this is a political football. Um, and Democrats in Texas, who are a minority party, have really tried to resist this in any way possible. So you remember they've left for Oklahoma before to try to avoid voting on this and other things. Uh, now they've left for Washington, D.C., uh, and they've just said they're going to let this legislative session run out. Uh, from what I can tell, it looks like it run out in August, early August. They're going to stay in D.C. long enough for it to run out uh, because they can't block it uh, through through numbers. Yeah, I think you, know, you use the word stunt. I think that's correct. I think that's the right label to put on it. Um, this is really there to generate pressure, I think, for Washington, D.C. and for Congress. You know, the For the People Act has been a b big political issue in Congress. The Democrats are trying to push that at the federal level. I think they're trying to lend some support to that. That's why they're in D.C. probably. Uh, but, yeah, I don't see this really having any long-term impact. Eventually, they're going to have to come back. They're going to have to represent their constituents. They're going to have to do their jobs. Um, and that's going to end up with this law being passed. So it's a delay tactic. You could argue they're getting attention for it. Maybe they're raising the profile of the issue to some degree. Uh, but yeah, I think stunt is the right word. And it's kind of, it's, I think as your comments imply, you know, they were elected to do a job. <clears throat> and right now they're simply refusing to do that job for their own reasons. And uh, as a citizen, I think this would, this would really bother me as a, if I were a Texas citizen, for sure. So I'm just taking note of the fact that today is the 13th of July, and if these legislators return to yeah. the state of Texas prior to the end of the special session ca uh, called by Governor Abbott, they are subject to immediate arrest. Um, and so are they just going to stay in D.C.? And on whose dime? I mean, the <laughs> charter flight, right? This picture of yeah. them on this chartered flight— yeah. 
with right. no masks, which, by the way, is in defiance of um, right. current guidelines related to flying. Um, it, I mean, just it, it is. Yeah. The, my my list of uh, <clears throat> of causes for concerns over this are many, 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 many. OK, so maybe we should leave that there. Um, how far is it? I mean, I, I live in rural America. Um, I live in one of the most rural counties that um, that, you know, technically exist out here. Um, and I could if I had to make a photocopy of my um, ID and submit it. <laughs> Um, what do you make of the vice president's comments that people in rural America live so far away from anywhere that they can make a photocopy that it is, um, you know, that I don't know how to make a photocopy of an ID and therefore my voter laws should not require such? Um, yeah, it's, it's just, just good. I just my just whole goal is to just get professors just to get political science professors laughing. This is. This is part of what I do is I just look for, you know, it's it's just so troubling to me because it's such a she it, it obviously lacks an understanding of what America is even like in, you know, outside of the Accela, um transit line. I just it, it, it just because you don't live in the corridor between D.C. and New York doesn't mean you don't have access to uh, the ability to take a picture of your photo I.D. and send it in. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it's elitist at its core. Um, and, you know, this is why I support things like the Electoral College. This is why I support things uh, like having a supermajority necessary to do certain things in the Senate and why I support the existence of the Senate and the filibuster. You know, I'm not sure being governed by people who think that uh, we rubes in the middle of a cornfield don't know how to operate a smartphone. Uh, I'm not sure having total control under them is, is what it really in my political interest and so it's it's funny in its own way, but it, it is rather shocking in others. Yeah. <clears throat> OK, um, now we have a couple of minutes left and I want to dedicate this time um, to Luna because Luna, yes. everybody across the country will feel what you have felt. And I love the way that you have expressed it. So tell people um, who Luna is. So Luna is our dog. Um family dog and you know we I have five children and uh, my one of my daughters really desperately wanted a dog and we we bought a dog for her and of course she became the family pet uh, but you know pet that's that's really not the right word she's a she's a member of the family uh, but she uh, unfortunately uh, developed a really serious medical problem out of nowhere um, and we had to say goodbye to Luna just a couple of weeks ago. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a shocking thing to go through as a family. You know, it feels kind of silly to talk about something like this when you think about all the people who've suffered through the pandemic and the, the human lives that are lost. But it continues to remind you, uh, I think, of what remarkable role that dogs play in particular um, in the lives of human beings. And Luna was a great dog. Um, and we all miss her desperately. Um, and our home is empty because of her absence. And, you know, I'm not a very sentimental person on the whole, uh, but uh, certainly losing her struck a, struck more than a nerve with me, and it has with the whole family. And so uh, all I can say about Luna is she she was a good girl, and we, we appreciate what she meant to our family, and we're sad to see her go. So um, I never in my entire life experienced my dad sobbing, I mean, inconsolably, Um except when our dog Luddy died. Yeah. Like I 
I mean, you know, right? So there is this relationship that we have um, with our pets. And uh, for those of us who are dog people, um, you know, we we experience them as total members of our families. And so um, I just wanted to lift that up and tell you that I acknowledge the pain and the reality of it. Um, and I recognize that this resonates with um, everybody listening right now because, like, right, people know this. We We know what this is like. So... I appreciate I, I it. Thanks very much. Yeah. My family appreciates it too. Ah, uh, absolutely. All right. Hey, as always, thank you so much for joining us. I will. Um, I'm going to keep my, you know, my eyes and ears open for headlines that make you laugh next time. <laughs> I appreciate it, Carmen. <laughs> you take care. Uh, thanks to you and all your listeners. All right. Thanks, Mark. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We got to take a quick break with Greg no- with Greg Laurie for Knowing God. We'll be right back. talk on the program about how to enter into the conversations of the day, enter into conversations in the public square, and to do so as people of faith. So how do we make a faithful presence? That's actually the title of the book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Former Governor Bill Haslam joins me next. It's his book. He is the author of it. And we're going to um, we're going to take up the topic. How did he do it and how does he um, suggest the rest of the rest of us do it? How do we get into political conversations, discourse, even public office and do so in ways that honor Jesus? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Studies show that kids who grow up in the church are actually abandoning their faith in record numbers, especially when they hit the late teen years. Why is that? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. As you know, our world is changing. It's no longer socially expected to attend church. Your teen hears anti-church messages all day long. Expect difficulty when you value something that the world doesn't value. Avoid the temptation to mock or berate your team as they strive to establish their own spiritual convictions. And by all means, keep encouraging your kids to pursue the truth, to connect with other Christians. And remember, there's nothing more winsome than a mom and dad who truly loves God with all their heart. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, we are uh, working to connect with... Uh, Governor Haslam right now to talk about faithful presence, the promise and peril of faith in the public square. We will uh, continue to do that behind the scenes work. Um, And let me just go ahead and comment on um, some things that the governor talks about in the book. Here's really the question that I think um, if you distill it all down, he tells, first of all, he just tells lots of great stories from his own experience uh, while in public service. 
And I think that here's the question that I was left with after reading the book. Am I cooperating with God? You know, when I when I am looking at the issues of the day, when I am having hard conversations about complex issues, am I seeking to cooperate with God? Or am I just looking for ways to co-opt what I know from the Bible um, to advance my own agenda, to advance whatever I think um, is best for me or my family or my group or my country? And I, I think that if you distill it all the way down, that's the question that Governor Haslam's book is seeking to provoke among us. So um, here's one of the things, uh, here's a quote from the book. All of us in politics and everywhere else should be careful to make sure we are being used by God and not using God for our own ends. Um, I think that that is a question that each of us has to ask every single day. No matter what the issue that we're facing, um, you know, we're trying to achieve something that would affect the common good. When we're talking about government, that definitely has its limits. When we're talking about the church, it does not have any limits. Um, And so that would be an interesting conversation to have in local communities across the country, in your own community, and in your own church. Like, what are the ways that we as the church have been sent by God into the world to affect the common good in ways that no government actually can? Because government is limited, rightly so. Um, And so... When in office, Governor Haslam dealt with a number of very complex issues, and he ended up in places and spaces that I think would be very, very surprising to folks across the country who, you know, aren't from Tennessee and don't know um, this particular, you know, sort of local history. And so one of the things he talks about in the book is how um, in in the state of Tennessee, uh, undergraduate education, undergraduate college education Um, is actually materially provided for. If you graduate from high school in the state of Tennessee and you qualify, um, you get free college education. It's Tennessee Promise, and it's for everybody, and it works. And so it's interesting that a Republican governor made that happen, and we talk about it on on the national scale as if it is um, impossible to do. And I think Governor Haslam would argue that uh, it is rightly done Locally, it's, it's rightly done at the state level. That's where you can best govern. You, you know, governance happens, um, you know, closest to home. All right, we have Governor Haslam now. Um, Bill, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, good morning, Carmen. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. All right. We have been um, talking in your absence a little bit about faithful presence. I have teed up the conversation this way. When I distill it all down, I think you are inviting us to ask the question at every moment, am I cooperating with God or am I just trying to co-opt God for whatever my agenda is? Wow. Um, I'm Bill Haslam, and I approve that message. You, you nailed it. <laughs> uh, and I heard what you were saying before about programs like Tennessee Promise. But, I, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the question we should ask ourselves, particularly when it comes to faith in politics, are, are we— are we using God? Or are we being used by God? And uh, it's easy in today's world to take a political posture on something that gets a lot of attention on social media and other places, but may or may not reflect what it looks like to be faithful to God in this circumstance. And I think part of that is the 
the tension of, you know, are we going to be people of love? Are we going to be people of truth? Are we going to be people of justice? Are we going to be people of mercy? You address that. Um, it's, it's often very hard to see how we can be both. Right. But, um, um, you know, the, the, the good news and the hard news of the gospel is that we're asked to be both. We're supposed to be people who speak the truth with love. You know, we, we all know a lot of people who do a great job of speaking truth and they even take pride in that. Like, well, I, I just, I tell it like it is. I'm a truth teller, but they don't do so well on the love side. We know a lot of people who do really well with love, but they wouldn't take a, uh, they, they don't have a, a position of conviction when times get tough. We're, we're asked to be people who do both of those things. And likewise, with justice and mercy, uh, you know, we're, we're in a world today where people are saying, you know, no justice, uh, no peace. Um, and, they're, and, and we have people marching down the streets with signs that say no justice, no peace. But, but we know as believers we don't just need justice. We, we need mercy as well. I, you know, I've been awake for about an hour and I'm relatively confident there've been some things in that hour already that, uh, that, that I, that I need mercy for. Uh, and it, on the same on, on the flip side is we, we know we want justice when we want, when somebody does something wrong, we want them to be caught and punished. We want the bad guys to be punished. So um, the beautiful thing that we have as followers of Christ is we have a picture of what justice and mercy look like at the same time. And that's what happened on the cross. And so one of the things I think we can bring to a world that's looking around wanting justice and mercy, but not knowing what they look like together is we can actually be people of the cross of a God who knew we needed mercy, but had to act in a just way at the same time. And the result was a picture of sacrifice. And I think that's what we're called to do as well. One of the um, subjects that you address in the book and really share quite personally about um, is the power to issue pardons or commute sentences and the new perspective or new appreciation that gave you on the beauty of the gospel. Can you talk about that? Uh, well, and first of all, uh, thanks for, I, I can tell you, you really have read the book, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm on several interviews where I can tell after about 17 seconds that the interviewer hasn't actually read the book. <laughs> so thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. Um, you know, as governor, in some ways, you're not as powerful as people think you are. Like, well, you're the governor, you can do whatever you want. But you have a state legislator and state uh, legislature and constitutional officers and other folks that are part of the balance of power. But there's one area where the governor has almost unlimited power, and that's in the area of pardons and clemencies and commutations of sentences. And um, I made a bad mistake when I was governor uh, in that I decided to post, put off any decisions around uh, issues like that until my last few months in office. And I did it because people said, if you don't, you'll spend your whole time in office with folks coming to you with issues large and small with somebody who got a DUI back in college uh, or um, somebody who is charged with a very serious crime is going to be in, in prison for a long time. You'll be flooded with requests. And so I took that advice and put it off. I did not realize how hard it would be to approach each one of those issues with a sense of justice and mercy. I, I thought I could get it. I thought I could do it easily that uh, they would bring cases to me and I would sit there in my wisdom and say, here's what we should do. 
but it it ends up to not be that simple to to like I said to be to be just and merciful at the same time to think through um okay what is what's been the impact on the victim here am i setting some sort of legal or some sort of precedent by making a a commutation of a citizen here um has this person truly repented and reformed from the life they were living um what is the what does their future look like if they get out um you can keep you can keep going with hundreds of things that that you need to think about and for me again the takeaway was this sense of um, kind of being overwhelmed by the desire to, to do both of those at the same time, to be just and merciful. And one of the things that caused me to do was, again, be incredibly grateful for the model of a Savior and a God who said, I will show you what justice and mercy together look like. We are talking with Governor Bill Haslam. Uh, we are talking about his brand new book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Governor Bill Haslam, we're talking about his new book, Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. Um, let's let's talk about um, the complexity of relationships because issues are complex. Government is incredibly complex. You have to do really hard things. You have to do the right things, and you have to do them with people um with whom you may disagree on lots and lots of issues. Can you just talk mm-hmm. about that? Because nothing would ever get done if we waited to do things only in alignment with people with whom we totally agree on 100% of issues. You are so on target. And I think that's one of the issues in the country today. We're, we're fairly evenly split, right? I mean, our presidential elections are close. The Senate's 50-50. The, the House has a four-seat difference between Republicans and Democrats. And, and yet in the middle of that, we're contemptuous of each other. So it doesn't lend itself very well to actually solving problems. And one of the stories that I tell in the book that's, that I think is very emblematic of, of, of the, the way, what it's really like to govern is every year, the president of the United States, regardless of party, puts on a, a, a white, a black tie dinner for all of the governors and their spouses and it's the president, the vice president, all the governors, most of the cabinet. It's it's a it's a beautiful affair, and you arrive at the White House, and the the Marine Band is playing, and there's usually some you know big name after dinner entertainment. But one of the years, I was sitting with um, somebody who was a, a high ranking official in President Obama's administration, and I said, and he had been there the whole eight years, and this was their last year, and I said. I'm just curious, what, what do you know now that you wish you had known eight years ago when you came into the White House? And he, he uh, got a very serious look on his face and said, I wish I had known how hard this is uh, and how complex the issues are. If I had, I wouldn't have been so hard on George W. Bush. He said, don't get me wrong, I still disagree with his policies. Um, and there's a lot of things that, you know, like I said, if we were running, I would still make the same points about where I disagree. But he said, the complexity and difficulty of trying to deal with 
uh, all of these issues in a serious way is so much more than I thought it would be. And, um, you know, one of the things I discovered as governors, by the time an issue got to me, if it was easy, it was solved a long time ago. And there were typically pretty good arguments for the other side. Our problem is today, we all just choose our news and we, we, we want to listen to somebody who's going to tell us what we already believe. And so we tend to not think much uh, about the arguments on the other side. And, and I think that's to our detriment. So when we talk about, you know, the challenges that we face as Christians in the culture today and our desire to participate in larger conversations um, in the culture, because we want to bring our faith to bear on uh, on what's happening. We want the common good. Um, we often hear that, like, faith is supposed to be this private matter. Or we hear people who are elected politicians say, well, you know, faith is foundational for me, but, you know, it's not forefront. They privately say they have certain convictions or hold um, what we might regard as a faithful position on something. But in terms of public policy, they actually advocate for the opposite. Can you just talk a little bit around that reality for us? Yeah, it's a really, really good uh, point that you bring up. Here's the reality. All of us, people of faith or not, bring our worldviews to the public arena with us. We, we just do. You know, and if you're a agnostic person, um, you, you bring that belief and a worldview with you when you come to, to, to issues. We're, we're the idea that church and state are separate has been so confused in our country. Our founders were brilliant in that they set up a system that said faith, religion is so important in this country that we're not going to let the government play at all. We're not going to uh, allow any church-state relationship to be – we're not going to establish any religion. We're also not going to prohibit the free exercise thereof. And so no, this idea that uh, we're supposed to divorce our faith from our views in the political arena I think is, is just totally, um, totally wrong. We are supposed to be um, the people that Paul says, you know, don't be con- conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is. And so we're supposed to bring those transformed uh, selves uh, and um, uh, and the and our views to the public arena. I, I think we're I think that's part of what we're called to do. So I always hear folks say, well. I personally believe this, but I'm going to vote in that way. And I, 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 just, I never have quite been able to wrap my arms around that. Um, I'm going to let you um, take up the issue of um, what what I think continues to still surprise some people. And my guess is it's because they don't know the whole story. Um, while governor of Tennessee, you vetoed the Bible bill, something that I suspect the people advocating for the Bible bill thought <laughs> – this is a no-brainer. Haslam will absolutely um, sign this into law. Talk with us about your view of the relationship between church and state. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it, 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 it is a good, it's a good example. So Tennessee, we have a pretty conservative legislature, and they had uh, passed a bill making the Bible the official state book. You know, every state has a, an official lots of things. So we have an official insect and an official bird and and tree and uh, drink and songs. Actually, we have several official state songs, 
but you, you, you get the gist of what I'm talking about. And in kind of an attempt to reclaim a culture that they felt was slipping away, our legislature passed a bill to make the Bible Tennessee's official state book. And I, as governor, you have the decision, are you going to sign a bill? Are you going to veto it? Or you have a third option. You, you can let it become law without your signature. I only, I only had a handful of vetoes in my eight years uh, because in Tennessee, it only takes a simple majority to override a governor's veto. So however many people voted for it the first time, if they'll vote for it the second time, um, it, will, it will override the governor's veto. But I became convinced that um, to have the Bible be the official state book was violating this, uh, uh, this clause in the state and the American Constitution against establishing a religion if we made it the official state book. And then, so, so the authors of the, uh, of the bill said, well, no, it's actually not, we're not promoting the Bible as God's word we're promoting it as a historical document um, that this is a significant piece of literature. And so I said, well, if that's the truth, then we're, um, we're not treating this book as the word of God, and we're trivializing the word of God to put it on the same level as um, the state insect and the state bird and all the other official state items. And uh, as you can imagine, I, I uh, to this day, I have people who grab me and say, I don't, I don't get it. You know, why would you veto the Bible? And, but I, you know, I, I honestly think that was the the right thing to do that we, we're not supposed to establish a state religion. And oh, by the way, I think every time that has happened in history, it's ended up poorly for the church. Agreed, agreed, and agreed. Um, I appreciate you. Thank you for being a student of the Word. Thank you for being a brother in Christ. Thank you for all your years um, at Cedar Springs. Um, thank you for your love of John Wood. Um, thank you for the way you let him pour into you. I mean, just on and on and on. I um, I appreciate you more than you know. Uh, we have been talking with a former governor of Tennessee, uh, Bill Haslam. The book is Faithful Presence. Uh, thank you, sir, for being with us today, and thank you for your service to us all. It's been a great way to start the morning. Thanks, Carmen. Have a great day. All right, we'll be right back. Loving all the comments um, on Zip Whip today. You can, uh, oh, we got another hour of Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.